Lots, if not most of you, will find these words very familiar, and hopefully if they're not very familiar to you, you'll still find them wonderful. In, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. For thousands of years, Christians have read that. They've memorized that. They've done studies on that. They've debated with the cults about that. It's one of the more well-known texts of Scripture. It's in John chapter 1, verse 14. The word... The eternal word, the son, became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a great text. It's one of our favorites throughout Christian history. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, that great heartwarming, debate-worthy, study-worthy declaration assumes that you know the book of Exodus. It assumes that you know a fair amount about the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. Many of us, maybe most of us, don't know that much about the book of Exodus, and we don't know very much about the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. And so today we're going to learn about the tabernacle in the book of Exodus so we can better understand and appreciate and Cherish the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. If you have a Bible, you can find the second book of the Bible, which is the book of Exodus, Exodus 25, 26, and 27. We learn about the tabernacle, and that's what we're going to be doing this morning. But we're doing it not just as a historic, academic kind of study. We're doing it with a view toward Christ because we're Christians. You know, you can, you can, you can love Christ, thankfully, and you can really appreciate John chapter 1, thankfully, without ever opening the book of Exodus, without ever knowing anything about the tabernacle, really. So I'm grateful. But it's sort of like when you watch a movie scene, and only the scene, and it's a great scene, and you love the scene, but you haven't seen the whole movie. You don't, you don't really appreciate it as much as everyone else does because you don't understand the context. You don't understand the flow. You don't even understand where the author or the writer or the screenwriter or the author of the original, where they placed it, why they placed it, where they placed it, so you can really appreciate the big picture and what's going on. And so we're going to do some history today, but in so many ways, Christianity is about history. From the historic work of the Lord Jesus to God working in history to God having a purpose for history. And so we're going to better understand Jesus today by better understanding the tabernacle and Exodus. That's the plan. So what we're going to do is we're going to sample. We're not going to do the whole thing. We're going to do a sampling of Exodus 25 to 27. And then we're going to talk about reasons why we don't want to learn more about the temple. So if you would, Exodus 25, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me 
a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive a contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. Verse 8. Get this. And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture. So you shall make it. Let's go down to verse 22. Uh, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim and that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now let's go to chapter 26, verse 31. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. We'll stop there for now. And my outline that I'm going to follow this morning in looking at this is four reasons to care about the tabernacle. Four reasons to care about the tabernacle in Exodus. And I'm sure there are more. I have more than four. But we're going to look at four reasons to care about the verses we read, the other verses that we didn't read, but ultimately the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. Now, some of you picked up a bulletin today. If you didn't, I'm sure you can see this. Well, (laughs) I'm sure you can't see it. In fact, if you picked up a bulletin and you look at this, I'm sure you can't see it. So I won't draw a lot of attention to it, but it's from the ESV study Bible. So you can say, huh, I kind of understand at least what it kind of sort of would have looked like. Some of you have seen, um, not reenactments, but you've seen replicas of such things. Uh, I've seen them. They're fascinating. But you at least get kind of a sense of the size and shape and the color of it all. Somebody said to me, they said, well, they thought it was an eye exam first. Um, I would fail miserably. Um, Mike Grimes said we should have made it black and white and it could have been a coloring sheet. So that would have worked. Um, but when you're... Pat and you email Mike Grimes on Saturday saying, hey, could you put this in the bulletin? You get what you ask for. We got it. Just like this. Thank you, Mike. It's not an eye exam. Um, We're not going to do the details. Some of you have study Bibles. You can find it in there, not just the ESV study Bible to get a sense. I appreciate a sense. But someone said, before I understood what it was, and I looked at it a little closer with my glasses on, I thought it was the drawings for the building expansion out here. (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was awesome, well played. Um, 
No, we're not building a tabernacle or a replica outside. We're just filling in the hole. Um, okay, let's get back to business. <laughs> tabernacle means tent, by the way. It means dwelling place. So in our Bibles, we read about a tent sometimes. We read about a dwelling place sometimes. Um, it will eventually be the, it, it is the unique dwelling of God. We'll talk about that, but I just wanted to make sure you understood. It's the dwelling place of God with Israel. It's the tent. It's the portable that will become more permanent, but not ultimate. It'll become the temple. So there's a lot of overlap. When they get to Israel and they get to Jerusalem, they'll have the temple built. But in the meantime, they have the tabernacle. So number one reason to care about the tabernacle is not so you can come up with new designs for your church. Um, that's not a, it's not on my list. It's never, de- we're never designed to say, now you, everybody should build one of these. Um, no, church buildings are not tabernacles. The tabernacle was unique to the history of Israel. It's meant to do unique things, and we're going to talk about some of them. Number one, first reason to care, and that is because the Exodus tabernacle brings hope. The Exodus tabernacle, the Exodus tabernacle brings hope. And when we, in Christianity, talk about hope, we mean something more significant than, I hope so. Will I ever win the lottery? I hope so. And I do hope so. But to illustrate, I've never purchased a ticket. So my hope is in hope. It's not even in terrible statistics. Okay? If I bought a ticket, at least then they're, 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 it's based upon something. But in Christianity, what we're talking about, when we talk about hope, and I'll move from the temple for a second, Christians have the blessed hope in the New Testament. Our hope is in Christ who physically on earth bodily was crucified in real time and space, really, truly, genuinely before eyewitnesses was resurrected. It's a historic reality. And he said, if you trust in me, though you die, you will live. Okay, so in Christianity, we we say hope, we mean, starts with a C, confidence. Right? It's a certainty. We haven't experienced it yet, but it's a certainty. So with that in mind, the tabernacle represents hope, that there is hope for Israel. In other words, Israel can have confidence that God is with them, and he's with them uniquely. He's with them uniquely to be their God. That's a promise. And they're going to be his people. And if he's their God, he's their Lord, it means he's going to provide for them. He's going to protect them from their enemies. He's going to do all of those things for them, if you will. And in the context, oh, I don't want to just have you take my word for it. But in the context, we end up having statements such as Exodus 6, 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. We've had those kinds of promises, but we've not only had those kinds of promises. He's done things for them. He, he redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt. He set them free. He's been doing things for them. And he says, I'm going to be your God. And now I'm going to uniquely dwell in your midst. And as I uniquely dwell in your midst, you'll be reminded that you're my people. I'm your God. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to make sure your needs are met. Remember, too, the context tells us that the tabernacle is in the context of hope. And not, I hope so, but hope in things that have actually been tangible realities. The context comes after chapter 20, where you have the giving of the Ten Commandments. And we've been looking at that and you have the the covenantal relationship, the formal relationship between God and Israel. And you've had the the, the covenant oath taking, 
right? It's been ratified. It's been made official. We've been learning about that. So all of this comes after God has made promises. The people have made promises. They're not going to be very good at keeping their promises, but God has sworn an oath, if you will, as a covenant maker, if you will, and they're formally bound together and you've got this treaty. That's another good synonym for covenant that's been sealed, if you will. It's been ratified, if you will. And, and now on the heels of that, you have a tabernacle. It's a sign of hope. It's a sign of certainty. Okay? It's a sign that he's a loyal, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and he's for his people, regardless of the threats. So it's good to see that the tabernacle reminds them that he's actually with them, and he's actually for them. Theology test time. And remember, everyone's a theologian. It just means studying God and who God is and what he does. Some of us are good theologians. Some of us are wanting to get better, hopefully all of us. Some of us aren't so good. Theology test. If the tabernacle is where God dwells, whatever happened to God being omnipresent? Two things can be true at the same time in different ways. In Psalm 104 today, the psalm we read earlier, that was an omnipresence psalm, right? The whole earth is his. He cannot be contained. The Bible says things like he's enthroned in the heavens, Psalm 123, verse 1. Psalm 11, 4, the Lord's throne is in heaven. So how do we square the two? Because the psalmist knew about the tabernacle and the psalmist knew about the temple. It's the unique presence of God for his people. The unique dwelling of God with his people. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. But isn't it encouraging if you're an Israelite in the Exodus? He's for us. And he's uniquely therefore with us. He's on our side. And as long as he's with us as our God and we're his people, our needs are going to be met. So it's the, that's why I always say it's the unique dwelling of God. God dwells everywhere. God is as with the Canaanites than he is with the Israelites in one sense, but not in another sense. He's not for the Canaanites or the otherites. He's their covenant Lord and the tabernacle reminds them with its ornate beauty and splendor, purple, costliness, majesty, distinction. Oh, our God. Is holy, yes, but He's with us. He's freed us. He's redeemed us. He's made promises to us. Remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? Now forget everything you saw. No, I'm kidding. Actually, I'm not going to pick on Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm going I'm I'm to compliment Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because the concept is a, is a good concept. In that... If you have God on your side, you have nothing to be afraid of. So in theory, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Now, having said that, the temple, excuse me, the tabernacle and the ark and all of these things were meant for a unique people, for a unique time to ultimately point to Christ who we will get to. And so in that sense, the movie 
doesn't score very high on Rotten Tomatoes, theologically. But you get the concept. Israel, in the wilderness wanderings, tabernacle, confidence. Confidence, certainty, hope. There's another sense. And we'll move on to another reason in just a moment, if you will. So they've got the ultimate ally. They've got the ultimate security regimen, if you will, because he is their God. But there's also a sense in which it's not only hope for Israel, the tabernacle. It's also a hope for humanity. Now, maybe not as explicit, maybe not as straightforward, but it, it also does give us some sense that there's, there's hope for humanity. Because since the fall... And the driving out of Adam and Eve in the garden. Things have not looked really hopeful. There's been some hopeful things that have happened, no doubt. But you know what? Driven out. Excluded. Not in communion with God. Not in harmony with God. Now it's tension. Now it's death. Now it's suffering. Now it's separation. Well, the tabernacle even as it's given to Israel, should remind everyone there's hope of restoration. If you do a parallel look, we won't take the time to do it now, but at Genesis 3 and Exodus, tabernacle and garden, there are parallels. There are similarities. I won't have you turn there, but Genesis 3.24 He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim with flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Exodus 25, 22, you've got the cherubim there represented. This is why scholars who are smarter than I am, but I would agree with them, say the garden is tabernacle-like. And the, t- and the tabernacle is garden-like. Some of you carry an ESV study Bible. They do make the observation. The tabernacle, like the Garden of Eden, is where God dwells. And various details of the tabernacle suggest it as a mini Eden. These parallels include the east-facing entrance guarded by cherubim, the gold, the tree of life, lampstand, and the tree of the knowledge, of knowledge, the law. Thus, God's dwelling in the tabernacle was a step toward the restoration of paradise, which is to be completed in the new heaven and earth, Revelation 21 and 22. I think that's, that's right. Tabernacling with God together with God, no, separated from God. Fast forward, Exodus tabernacle, oh, God is with them again. Uniquely, specially, there's hope. There's hope. Well, the story doesn't end with the Exodus, Exodus tabernacle. Let's move on to another reason why we should care about the, te- the tabernacle. And if you notice, I keep wanting to say temple, and maybe I'll slip up sometimes, because sometimes the Bible uses them, the concepts interchangeably. So it's not, it's not a major foul to do that. But we're not to the temple yet. We're talking about the tabernacle. Now, the reason why we should care as Christians living in the 21st century, the Exodus tabernacle anticipates Jesus. It anticipates Jesus. I started with John 14. I'll go back there. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Lots and lots of you know, because lots and lots of pastors have done a really good job throughout the ages, and I'm glad for that. Lots of you know, he dwelt among us. You could literally translate it at what? He tabernacled among us. He tented among us. And so, great job, pastors who say that. that it's, it's good and important. And, and it's kind of weird, and it's kind of shocking. But see, now we have the great movie scene in the greater context of the whole. God uniquely, graciously, kindly, mercifully, uniquely among His people. The unique presence of God. Jesus is the one who tabernacles among His people. One helpful resource said, this is an expression of the similarity with God's tenting in Israel. They're not exactly the same, but there's a striking similarity that now God is tenting not with Israel, but He's tenting with those who would trust in Him as the ultimate spotless Lamb. John John 1, 14, just it just carries a lot of weight. It carries a lot of significance. It's just loaded. In so many ways, it's saying, to those of you who don't know, read your Old Testament. Read your Old Testament. Because history is good, yeah, but you know what? It's more for a more significant reason than that. It's to understand the whole, not just the glorious grand scene. He's for us because He's with us. Now I would like you to turn to the book of Hebrews if you would. So we are we're giving a second reason why the tabernacle matters. And it's because it anticipates Jesus. And undeniably, if you go to Hebrews chapter 9, the whole book of Hebrews does this. But if you've never read Hebrews 9... Wait till you get a load of this. (laughs) If you've read it a whole bunch of times, wait till you get a load of this. (laughs) Remember, uh, a lot of times at Christmas time, pastors preach sermons and we, we, we learn about Jesus being born under the law. In the fullness of time, he's born under the law. Yeah, Jesus, at the right time, under the old covenant, came so that he would be the ultimate tabernacle. Okay, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, I told you, tabernacle, tent, unique dwelling. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. This is, this is exactly what we just learned about in Hebrew, or excuse me, in Exodus 25, 26, and 27. Verse 4 of Hebrews 9, having the golden altar of incense and ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold uh, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail how about verse 6 these preparations having thus been made the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties but into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So it's 
massively significant. It's important. And we're talking about sin and we're talking about atonement and we're talking about God not being approachable in a casual way. What is this designed to do? It's designed to help us to look forward to Christ. And if we keep going, how about verse 11? Here, here's the high point. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, Ah, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He, Christ Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It's, it's, it's one of the most grand and glorious realities of all. And, and we don't, Today, here, we're grasping its grandness and gloriousness at least a little bit better because we're trying to look at a little bit bigger picture of the whole. It was designed to do this. It was designed so that when the right time came, Jesus would be the one who is the ultimate high priest. He is the one who is the ultimate tabernacle. He is the one who fulfills the whole thing. It was always designed to do that. It truly is grand. If you go to verse... 24, and then we'll keep moving. Verse 24, also of Hebrews chapter 9. For Christ has entered not only into holy places made with hands, which, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's that's divine design. That's what it's meant to do. It was meant to prepare, to set the stage historically, and then climactically to have Jesus be the one. I'm far more interested in the book of Exodus than I've ever been in my whole life. I don't want to sound blasphemous, but I'm not that interested in the book of Exodus for the book of Exodus in and of itself. Uh, I like purple. I like blue. I like cherubim. Um, I like the smell of meat cooking. <laughs> but, but I'm not that interested in the tabernacle itself. But I am interested in why it was on earth to begin with. And I am very inter- interested as a Christian to understand why it ever came about to begin with. And it was to anticipate the one who would be the ultimate one. And so I truly, genuinely, earnestly, I really mean it, am more interested in the book of Exodus than ever. It's fascinating. Not in and of itself, but designed, but what it's designed to do. We won't take the time to go there. Perhaps next week in Matthew 27, when the veil is torn, when Jesus dies, it was all by design to have this happen. Fulfillment in Christ. Let's move to a third reason, and it will be similar, a third reason to care about the tabernacle in Exodus, and that is the Exodus tabernacle reveals the heavenly reality. It reveals the heavenly reality, and I want to look at Hebrews 8 and 9 for this. We're doing four of these, we're on three, most of you look like you're doing great. 
trying to motivate you to see the bigger picture in redemptive history and how Jesus fits in. All by divine design. The Exodus tabernacle reveals a heavenly reality. Why is that going to matter? It's going to matter because it'll change the way you read your Bible. It's going to matter because I think it'll help you to see the genuine significance of the Old Covenant and the tabernacle. It's no small thing. I may have sounded like I was sliding it earlier, and I didn't mean to do that. Let's look at two super intriguing verses in Hebrews 8 and 9. In Hebrews 8, 5, it says, They, Old Covenant tabernacle stuff, they serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But back to the beginning there, they serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. So lots of things we could talk about here. Lots of articles and books and important things talked about. Some of it's easy to understand, some of it's hard to understand, but let's just think in terms of the tabernacle represents something that is heavenly. It's a type. It's a, it's a shadow. There's some grander, grander reality that it represents. Now maybe, how about Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23? Back to Hebrews 9, 23. This, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than, than these. So, a famous theologian by the name of Gerhardus Voss has tried to depict this with a triangle. And the triangle has the heavenly, heavenly realities at the apex at the top. But then on the left side, you've got the earthly tabernacle temple because it comes down from heaven. Then on the right side, you've got Christ coming down, the ultimate one. I bring that to your attention because there's a tabernacle reality before the earthly Exodus tabernacle reality. It's a heavenly reality, the author of Hebrews says. That tells us when it comes to our Bible reading, it's okay to read the book of Exodus and think about Jesus. Because He's the eternal one. He's at the top. He's at the apex. He's the eternal Son before there ever was a tabernacle in the book of Exodus. He's he's the eternal one. I know I've said that probably three times. He's the one who is, according to the predetermined plan of God, according to Ephesians chapter 1, is going to be the Redeemer. And so I fully expect to try to read Exodus for what it says in Exodus, but I know already that it's a heavenly reality of the eternal Son 
given to humanity in the old covenant through shadowy things. You know, the dimmer switch is pretty far down. But in the incarnation, He will come. And there's no dimmer switch. But it was always designed to anticipate Him. Now, another aspect of it is, if it's the heavenly reality come down even in the old covenant, the old covenant's actually really important. It's not the most important. The book of Hebrews would have you to, to, to know, please don't go back to the old covenant or there's no hope for you. But most certainly the author of Hebrews is not suggesting that there weren't any believers in the old covenant or that the tabernacle didn't matter or it wasn't the unique presence of God because it most certainly was the unique presence of God. Don't make the incarnation before the incarnation, but don't think that the spirit of Christ wasn't working in and among his people before the incarnation because he most certainly was in light of Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 9. Well, we should do the last one. Maybe one more thing about Bible interpretation because it's a hot topic and some of you come here because you like controversy. No, I hope that's not true. I mean, I like a little controversy because it motivates me, uh, but we don't want to be those people, um, at least not all the time. Um, But I've mentioned that I think we should read the book of Exodus not wondering how this has anything to do with anything. It's just a story divorced of everything else. No, there's a heavenly reality before the tabernacle. And so let's read everything before the tabernacle and let's read about the tabernacle and after the tabernacle, putting things in its place, in their places. I just want to remind you that this is the way Christians have been reading the Bible for the most part since there have been Christians. It's okay to read your Bible like a Christian. Um, It's a little bit of a hobby horse because we're told oftentimes that we shouldn't read our Bibles like Christians. We should read the Old Testament like we're Jews. And then we should read the New Testament like we're Jews sometimes. (laughs) You know, ask someone, do you think the Bible is a Christian book? Thankfully, most Americans, even if they don't like the Bible, are going to say the Bible is a Christian book. But I've heard from Christian scholars that the Bible is not a Christian book. I don't want to give those scholars my money. And I don't want you to either. Um, Christians, since there have been Christians, generally speaking, have read the Bible like it's a Christian book. Why? Because Christians, this is important, have believed that there's one ultimate divine author of the Bible. And ultimately, his plans and purpose center around his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So history has been going somewhere. And so we read about the tabernacle and say, this is really interesting in and of itself, but there's a whole lot to the greater context. And so I don't think it's controversial to say the Bible is a Christian book. Well, what ended up happening as a quick history lesson, I'm not a historian. I don't play one on TV, um, but I like history. Christians tended to read the Bible this way up until around the time of the enlightenment. Uh, off the top of my head, think 17th century. When we started saying we don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible. We think the Bible is written by a bunch of different human beings and it's interesting and intriguing. And so unbelievers did that. And then Christians, like Christians often do, they follow the unbelievers. 
And now we read the Bible in light of all the different human authors, which is good to do, but not as Christians. We say human authors and one divine author who's in charge of the whole thing. So let's read scripture in light of scripture. That's been the old way of doing things. And so tabernacle represents something that existed even before the Exodus tabernacle. And it anticipates something that will exist after the Exodus tabernacle. That's very Christianly. Okay, hope I didn't lose too many of you there. We're going to do the last one here. It'll be the best one. Let's use it as the conclusion. Fourth reason to care about the tabernacle in Exodus. The Exodus tabernacle anticipates the new creation. It anticipates the new creation. And I'm just going to quickly remind you, as you find Revelation 21... The new creation has been part of the plan and purposes of God all along because he's an eternal God with a perfect purpose for the world. And so we're going to put the pieces together, tabernacle. I'm reading Exodus. I'm reading Exodus as a Christian, and I'm reading Exodus thinking, this is amazing. This is extraordinary that God will be with sinful people. Well, it's through the priesthood and it's through the sacrifices and there's separation between the holy place and the most holy place. And God is distinct and God is different. Oh, I love learning about the book of Exodus in the book of Exodus. I love learning about the book of Exodus because I think there was a tabernacle in the garden. And isn't it interesting how there's a similarity? I love reading the book of Exodus, also thinking about Jesus, who's the ultimate dwelling among us, tabernacling among us. I love it for that reason as well. I also, and here's where we're going now, I love to read the book of Exodus because there's going to be a final Exodus. I love reading the book of Exodus because there's going to be an ultimate tabernacle anticipated, waiting for. It's when your life is going to be better than it is now. It's when my life is going to be better than it is now. We don't have to fear any enemies. Thankfully, the Bible teaches we're already a part of it, even though it hasn't happened yet. Thankfully, since Jesus has been raised from the dead, conquering death, it's certain. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says we're already new creation, even though we haven't experienced it yet. Revelation 21 is where it's at, folks. We're going to have tabernacle talk in Revelation chapter 21. This is a great pitch for our upcoming conference as well, because it's about this very thing. Revelation 21, 1, don't miss it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Probably representing danger, fear, things unknown, harm, unpredictable. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down, uh, uh, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying... Behold the dwelling place. We know what that is. That's tabernacle talk. Behold the dwelling place of God is with man. That sounds like Exodus. Right? And Exodus sounds like like Revelation. And Revelation sounds like Hebrews. Here it is. And it kind of sounds like the garden. All on purpose. The dwelling place, see, it's the ultimate one. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell there. There's our concept. There's our word. He will dwell. He will tabernacle with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. See, even if you don't know that this is what you want, this is what you want. 
Even if your unbelieving friends don't know what they want, this is what they want. They protected from all harm. Every need met. Finding peace, tranquility, fulfillment, safety. This is, this is the longing of the human heart. And we get little glimpses of it and, and along the way, but th- this is what we want. It even, it even goes back. This is very, this is covenant talk in the, in the ancient Near East, right? You, you've got a people. Maybe they're a conquered people by a great king and then they make treaties and they make oaths. And if you do these things, I'll always provide for you, protect for you, protect you from your enemies. Everything is going to be fine. You should be loyal to me because I'm the greater king. Well, that's just taken and put on, on an ultimate level. The creator's the creator and we're not. He's the ultimate king. <laughs> okay. And, and he does require that we treat him like he's God and that we're not. Because anything else would be insane. Right? But I will be your God and you will be my people. And that, that is, that carries a huge payload. It's because of the context and we're going to see this. If he says, I will be your God and you will be my people, that means you have nothing to fear. That means you're safe. That means Everything's going to be okay. If he says, I'm your God and you're my people, it means that. And you say, how could it mean that? Let's keep reading. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. See, you don't have anything to cry about anymore. There is no more pain. There is no more fear. There are no more enemies. The ultimate enemy being death. See, I'm not making things up when I say, if he says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people, it means everything is going to be okay. And that's, that's built in the statement, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. See, ultimate enemy, according to the New Testament, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And if I could just fill in there before we do verse five, the list could go on and on and on and on. Any need you would ever possibly have will be met. Any phobia you could ever possibly have will be no more. Everything's going to be fine because I'm your God and you're my people. And now, as all of these other things have anticipated, it is the ultimate climactic tenting. (laughs) Dwelling with God. This, by the way, is even better than the garden. Because in the garden, as good as it was, and it was good, there was the possibility for violation. And now in Revelation 21, there will be no more possibility because, reading between the lines, the true and last Adam has done everything right on behalf of those people he represents. Read Romans chapter 5. This is an even better tabernacling. Don't think that, oh, won't the new heavens and the new earth be great? It'll be just like paradise. Well, it will be, unless you mean just like what happened before the fall paradise. It's going to be better. It's going to be better. And so he says in verse 5, 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What a great statement in the great context of ultimate tabernacling with God. Closing verse, not in this context, but I think you can appreciate the fact that this stuff is everywhere and it's always been there, but maybe under our noses we haven't noticed it. The verse that came to my mind when it comes to all of this is one of the most famous verses in all of Christianity other than the Gospel of John. And it's Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, what? Who could be against us? And you know, that's a great verse out of the greater context of the Bible. What a great movie scene. If God is for us, who can be against us? That is dripping with. That is magnificently, wonderfully in the greater context of the whole Bible. If the all-powerful, all-knowing, great I am, not like the gods of the nations, if Yahweh, that God, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping, sun-sending, crucified, raised from the dead son, if that one is for us, who could be against us? The answer is nobody could be. It's impossible. But even that verse is borrowing from the old covenant world, the great king who covenants with people. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. That means you have nothing to be afraid of. So as your week is less than stellar, I'm not hoping for that, but as your week is difficult and as you hear bad news and things that are difficult and challenging and as you don't behave perfectly, even though we would want you to do the right thing for the glory of Christ, you've got to, got to, got to know that the Lord Jesus Christ, in a tabernacling kind of context, says to encourage his people, I am making all things new where there will be no more crying and no more being hungry and no more pain and no more conflict and no more difficulty and no more discouragement and no more depression and no more crises. It is why we trust in Jesus. It is why we trust in Christ. The tabernacle, the ultimate tabernacle, is a gospel tabernacle. It's good news for us because God dwells with us and he's for us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the book of Exodus. Thank you for the things that we learn. Help us to keep learning. Help us to not only learn to learn, but may it cause us to be grateful and thankful. May it cause us to, to be thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. May it cause us to want to live for him. Um, please encourage us as we do hurt in different ways at different times. Help us to remind each other as well about the great reality of the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.